Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 20 and 21 today, so it could very well take the rest of our natural lives to get through the book of Revelation. So the good news is we all get to live until we're done, at least. Actually, I don't have the right to say that. Only God determines that. But Sounds like one of those movies, doesn't it, where magically, supernaturally, they never died because they never got through the book of Revelation. <laughs> Twilight Zone or something along those lines. So let me read those two verses. Verse 20, nevertheless, that's the part we don't look forward to hearing, right? If we're the recipient... I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to delve into these issues present at the church in Thyatira, we ask you just to Open up our understanding, our hearts, our minds. We ask that you be able to uh, give us input today, insight, understanding, and that we could learn those things that you want us to learn so that we can continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless this study now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we looked at the commendations, and there were some good ones, but then Jesus launches into a rather in-depth a series of rebukes. And right here we start with to teach Jezebel, this apparently this woman in the church there, a self-proclaimed prophetess, just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, was leading the people into sin. And one of those sins, she was teaching and seducing my servants to commit sexual immorality. And by the way, you probably already noticed this, and I've pointed it out before, but sexual immorality is a trademark of pretty much every cult group. There was the uh, children of God. I've mentioned them before, Moses Berg, or David Berg, who became known as Moses David, the founder of the children of God. In the midst of the genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a genuine revival, late 60s on into the 70s, the Jesus movement, there were those who came in to deceive. Moses David or David Berg was one of those. He was a congregational minister who formed his own cult with young people, kind of a fake part of the Jesus movement. And he taught them to witness by having sex with other young people to show them the love of Christ. And he engaged in a lot of impure things himself with the young women in the movement. One of the prominent members of that movement was the actor Joaquin Phoenix and his family, River Phoenix, who died of a drug overdose. Those kids were all raised in the Children of God movement and all became pretty messed up. That's another trademark of cult groups. Not only do they lead you into sin, most people wind up pretty messed up. There was the Branch Davidian, remember David Koresh, who also initiated the women of his cult into the group by having relations with them. And then there's the Metropolitan Church, 
the gay church, which teaches that gay and lesbian sex is okay as long as it's monogamous. But in most cases, monogamous only lasts so long, doesn't it? Until you decide to be monogamous with the next person. Oh, I've been monogamous all week. And then Satanism and witchcraft, which is also a cult, or occult, one of the big trademarks of the Satanist and Wiccan movement, free sex, orgies are an integral part, and basically all the ancient pagan religions. They all had temple prostitutes and so forth and integrated all kinds of sexual immorality into their pagan worship. And it's probably highly unlikely that this woman Jezebel, whether that was her real name or just the name that Jesus identified her by, it's highly unlikely that she was promoting these practices without indulging herself. Interestingly, there are some Bible teachers that even believe she may have been the pastor of the church of Thyatira's wife. Much like, because of the analogy of Jezebel and Ahab, Ahab was the king of Israel, Jezebel was his wife, and yet she was really pulling the strings there and leading the people into idolatry, which resulted in that big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. And I will mention, when we talk about cults and sexual immorality, that one of the cornerstones of the early Mormon church was polygamy. And it's a good excuse to sleep with as many young women as possible. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, all the founders were polygamists, and they continued to be so until it was finally made illegal, and yet there are many splinter groups that still practice it today. And now it's beginning to become mainstream. I predicted this years ago. When they started... Um, promoting and endorsing gay marriage. And then I said, quite a long time ago, I'm sure I wasn't the only one, that once you start breaking down the barriers of traditional biblical heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman, then everything will begin to happen. There have been ridiculous instances of at least one or two, if not more people I've read about, that have married their dog or their cat. That's really a blasphemous act. Take a divinely uh, established institution established by God between one man and one woman created in his image, and now you're going to bring an animal into it? And then there was the three guys in Canada. Two of them were married. I think I've mentioned this before. But then there was a third guy they wanted to bring into the relationship, so the first two got a divorce so they could then have a three-way marriage. And they got married, the three of them together. So once you start to deviate, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, okay, you start over here at point A, okay? And then you begin to deviate from the truth by 1%. By the time you get out here, you're totally out in left field. You're out. That 1% continues out and gets farther and farther and farther away from the truth, farther and farther away from what is right. And so it was only a matter of time before, we're not there yet, but we're very, very close. And the guidelines and the boundaries and the barriers of marriage have been so broken down that we're already a place where just about anything goes. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we've even had TV programs 
sister wives, this type of thing, about polygamy. Can you imagine something like that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? And so now what we have is starting to move into the mainstream of Christianity, Christian polygamists. There is a movement. A pastor friend of mine had a youth pastor in his church who got involved in this online, reading about this Christian polygamist movement. And he began to groom a couple of the young women in my friend's church behind his back to become his second and third wife. Of course, when it was discovered, the guy was removed. But this is from the Cult Education Institute. Christian polygamists on the move. Protestants claim biblical sanction and seek converts. This is from a website called christianpolygamy.com. You can have many wives in Christian polygamy simply by marrying one at a time. We are promoting the completion of the Reformation movement. Then there's an article from a publication called southcoasttoday.com. The title is My Three Wives, Christian Polygamists Say Bible is Their Guide. If this isn't a prime example of what we're talking about here with Thyatira, in this case being led astray by this false prophetess referred to as Jezebel. And again, referencing the Mormon church from an article January 17, 2000, though the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints banned polygamy in 1890, the fundamentalists believe Mormon church founder Joseph Smith was shown by God that polygamy is a means of exaltation in heaven. And this guy named Butt, B-U-T-T, aims to begin a Christian polygamy movement worldwide. We know that oftentimes the female population is somewhat larger, a little bit larger than the male population. Historically, part of the reason for that is because men have been the ones to go off to war to fight and die in battle. All the wars we've had and down through human history tends to thin out the male population. And I do think, as we are in the last days, and as we get further and deeper into the last days, particularly during the tribulation, then uh, it'll be no holds barred. Everything goes, anything goes. You're going to see this kind of stuff all over the place. And so this first big sin that Jesus is addressing here is Jezebel teaching and seducing his servants, the followers of Christ, to commit sexual immorality. And certainly, a great many people, if they're told, you know what, you can be a child of God, you can identify as a Christian and still do whatever you want to with your physical body, antinomianism against the law, anything goes, then certainly they're going to flock to that. But I'll tell you, any so-called Bible teacher that tells you it's okay to have sex outside of heterosexual marriage, whether it be fornication, adultery, gay sex, or worse, that person is an out-and-out -out deceiver and a liar. That needs to be clearly stated. 
Now the other thing is not so cut and dried. It has to eat things sacrificed to idols. And so if you've ever wondered about that, puzzled about that, what's the deal? Because in this time we're living in, what's the application? Well, let's try to sort through this. There was an issue that arose in the early church regarding whether Gentile converts had to follow the Jewish law, including circumcision, to be followers of Christ. The apostles then made this determination, Acts 15, 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. And then I jump down to verse 29 where they give the directive that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now the language that's used here indicates that the apostles did not view these things as essential to salvation, but they were beneficial in keeping the peace between Gentile and Jewish believers. So in order to promote peace between the Jewish and Gentile believers, the Gentiles were asked to abstain from any practice that was a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. So why is it such a big deal here in Revelation 2.20? I want to read a long passage here from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, and that's what we partook of this morning, that's another name for communion, for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Question mark. No. An idol is nothing. Rather than the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, ever gone into a Chinese or an Asian restaurant and they've got their little altar there to Buddha and they have little bits of food on there to offer up to him? That kind of thing. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that you should not eat there, but this is an example of the kind of things that they're talking about. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And there are many pagan religions that do similar things where they have a little altar, a little idol. They put some food on there, something to drink. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All to the glory of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So Paul is saying, you know, you can get by on a technicality. We have freedom in Christ. We're not under bondage. We're not under legalism. But there are certain things that are not beneficial. They're not helpful. They don't edify. They don't build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. Don't really want to know where that came from. <laughs> for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. You know, like some people 
we get all freaked out. You get these various stories and rumors go around about Procter and Gamble or somebody and how the head of the company is a Satanist and this there's a little symbol on here, you know. And, and if you take that out to the limit, then you won't be able to buy anything. You won't be able to shop. Well, the, comp- the head of this company is a homosexual, so you can't buy that. You see what I'm saying? But at the same time, we do have to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters in Christ not to stumble them if we can avoid it. If any of those who do not believe, non-believer, invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, by the way, (laughs) do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. They might be testing you, right? Oh yeah, they just had a big Wiccan sacrifice down here and we had some leftover meat. (laughs) oh no I think I'll just have vegetables tonight thank you they might be testing you to see how genuine your faith is you know for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness conscience I say not your own but that of the other for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience but if I partake with thanks why am I evil spoken of for the good over which I give thanks Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So it's one thing. Jesus said, whatever is put before you, give thanks for it and eat it. But if someone specifically tells you that there's a nefarious history to this item, whether it would be food or something else, uh, we talked, I think it was last week, about the kachinas, remember? And to many people, you know, I would never go into somebody's home. I see they've got kachinas. Somebody collect those things. Man, do you know you're going to hell? You better get that out of here right now. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But if I was given an opportunity and the subject came up, I would probably try to let that person know, well, you know, there is kind of a dark history to these things. They're not just little dolls. And I was thinking about it the other day. I was talking to my wife, and I think actually when I was a kid, I grew up in Arizona, so like New Mexico, there's a lot of Native American history and heritage and so forth. I think I actually had a little, actually, maybe it was just an Indian doll. Maybe it wasn't a kachina. I had some kind of a little doll. But I'm, I, I still have toxic masculinity, so don't worry. Uh, I did have this little doll, though. <laughs> But, again, understanding that they're... What's Paul telling us here? First of all, the pagan gods are no gods at all, but they're dead and lifeless. But there are demonic entities associated with them. Do we get that? It's kind of like with voodoo. You know how they have those voodoo dolls? They stick the pins in and so forth. That, That doll is nothing. It's dead, but... If someone is in that frame of mind, that frame of reference, there can be demonic activity behind it. Even like totem poles, the Eskimos had. I guess other native groups had those too. All these things, the idols in and of themselves are dead and lifeless, but there is spiritual activity behind them. And that's why an issue is made out of this 
Jezebel, seducing the people to sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul says, don't ask. Just receive it with thanksgiving. But if somebody goes out of their way to point out to you what's behind this, then you have to abstain. They weren't to worry about where the food came from. They were simply to eat it with thanksgiving. However, if someone made them aware of an idolatrous connection, they were to avoid it. Again, mainly for the sake of the other person. They think, well, wow, some kind of Christian you are, really? You know, I, I told you up front, I thought you probably needed to know, but it doesn't seem to bother you. Okay. And that's the problem with, Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And so when we overexert our freedom in Christ, as it were, then we are risking stumbling someone else. And we should put that person first. We are to be selfless like Christ, not focusing just on ourselves. It would seem that the apostles' rebuke over the issue of food sacrifice to idols was because it was destroying the testimony of believers with the secular community and with the Jews of the city who had not been converted. And so to indulge our liberties at the expense of others is not Christ-like. 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And I'm sure you can think of many examples and again, we're, we're distinguishing between the things in the scriptures that are clearly laid out that are wrong. You just don't do it. We're in a major battle today, even in that regard. Even though the Bible may clearly state, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. No one who does these things will inherit the kingdom of God. There are still people going against that, aren't there? But what we're talking about are what we call disputable matters in the Bible. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't clearly... I don't know of any references to smoking in the Bible other than Sarah lit off the camel. In the King James Version, when she came, <laughs> came to meet, to, was it Sarah? Maybe it was Rachel. One of those chicks lit off the camel. <laughs> I forget if it was Sarah or Rachel. But I think it was Sarah lit off the camel. Ooh, it's just a silly millimeter longer, you know. And yet we know that there are some undesirable health risks involved in smoking. And, you know, historically, a lot of churches have looked at that and said, well, if you smoke, you're going to hell. Well, no, but you might set yourself on fire. <laughs> um, and so, but again, with preferring the other person, not being a stumbling block. I mean, there are some churches that restrict their congregation from watching TV because TV is evil. Now, TV isn't evil, but some of the content is, right? And it's funny because this church, which I, I had family members attend, they were not allowed to watch TV, but they could go to movies. <laughs> That's legalism, you see? It's selective. So apparently, the leaders of the church really like to go to the movies. So they didn't outlaw going to movies, but they did outlaw watching TV. Do you see how this stuff works? That's legalism. So that's why Paul says, for me all things are lawful as a believer. We live under the law of love, under God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and so forth. 
But at the same time, we're not to live lives of selfishness, only focusing on our own wants, our own needs, our own desires. How does what I do, what I say, affect those around me? So that's the indictment against Jezebel, who had led apparently uh, quite a number of people within the church of Thyatira into these sins. Now, in verse 21, Jesus, remember this is Jesus talking. You remember that, right? We call John the Revelator. Have you ever heard that, John the Revelator? But really, John's just the recipient. Jesus is the Revelator. Jesus gives the revelation to John. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. There's that grace, that mercy, that patience. Just as he gave the people of Noah's day time to repent. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering the divine, that's God, long-suffering, his patience, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. In Genesis 6, 3, we're told, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And so, you can imagine, it's just Noah and his two sons building this boat the size of a battleship. Do you know the dimensions are roughly equivalent to a modern-day battleship? It took them 120 years to build it. Fortunately, people lived a lot longer back then. But that was also, as they're building the boat, God is extending mercy, grace, mercy, patience to the people dwelling on the earth at that time. They have 120 years, 120 years to repent. But it's kind of like a double-edged sword, if you will. God is long-suffering. He's patient. He gave Jezebel and all those who had followed her into sin time to repent. He didn't immediately just squash her like a bug. So this might answer a question that some of you have asked in the past. Why does God let people get away with the things he lets them get away with? You ever had that thought, that question? I don't get it. Well, it's because he's patient, he's long-suffering, and that same patience and long-suffering was extended to you before you came to Christ. And sometimes afterwards. Above all, God is patient and long-suffering, but the scriptures do indicate that his patience has limits, as in the days of Noah. He gave him 120 years. Not one person tried to get on that boat with Noah. Did you notice that? Until after the water started rising, and then it was too late. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know what the rest of this day is going to bring. And there are a lot of people on this planet right now who are holding back, resisting God. And then, at the last minute, when it's too late, they're going to try to get on the boat. 
James 2.13, I love this verse. The last part of it especially. For judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And we see that oftentimes too. People who are so unmerciful. But then when they get in a situation where they desperately need mercy, they're crying out for it, right? God says no. If you are not merciful, you will not receive mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy, I love this, triumphs over judgment. Don't you love that? What would you rather have, mercy or judgment? I want mercy all day long, don't you? Have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm more and more aware every day of what I really do deserve. I've told you guys many times, don't ever demand that God give you what you deserve. Ask for his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But then look at this. And by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. So some people will read that and they say, oh, no, I knew it, I'm cursed. I'm under a curse. Let me tell you something. The minute you give your life to Christ, the curse is broken, the curse is removed. Don't ever let the devil tell you that lie. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are not under the curse. But we've seen how that happens. Generational sin, haven't we? The alcoholism, the drug abuse, the fornication, the adultery, the divorce. It is passed on to the third and fourth generation. But in Christ, you're a new creation. You're not under the curse. And that's good news. But we see the balance here. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. But you can be cleared. You can be pronounced not guilty when you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is our defense attorney, our advocate. We are guilty as charged. But we can be pronounced not guilty when we put our faith in Christ. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, not slow, doesn't drag his feet, and it's talking about the return of Christ. Where is the promise of his coming? You Christians are full of baloney. He's never coming. It's just a deception, an illusion, a fantasy. But he's not slow concerning his promise. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. How long has Jesus been gone? Two days. Two days. And by the way, we're, we're right at the third day. You ever heard of the third day? The day when Christ rose from the dead? And more than likely the day when he will return? The day that we're living in. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness, but his long suffering. Why has Jesus not come any sooner than he has? Because God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, mercy triumphs over judgment. The last thing God wants to do is to destroy the human race. He's pro-life, as I've told you many times. 
But there is a limit. Just like in the days of Noah, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, we're living in another time where I believe the limit to God's patience is about to come to an end. There has to be a time when God pours out on his, his wrath on an unbelieving world after we're removed. Oh, what makes you think we deserve that? We don't. People use that argument all the time. Why, why do you believers think that you deserve to be removed before the tribulation? And oftentimes the question is asked by other believers. How ridiculous is that? That's like saying, what makes you think you deserve to be saved? You don't. That's the whole point. We don't deserve salvation, forgiveness, and we don't deserve to be raptured. We're not raptured because we deserve it. How many of you, if your little kid ran out on the road and there was a car about to run him over, well, stupid, you're going to get what you deserve. I'm not going to help you. You'd run out there and grab him out from in front of that car, wouldn't you? Or that train. There's a train coming. Now, Bob Dylan said it's a slow train, but it's getting faster and faster. That locomotive is coming down the track and it's going to plow over this planet. The wrath of God. And God's not going to leave his kids in front of the train to be run over with it. He's going to snatch us out of the way. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, everybody said, if God's such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. People send themselves. God's given you a free ticket to heaven. There's a song, something like that, and I can't remember quite how it goes. <laughs> Wish I could, it's a cool song. God's given you a free ticket to heaven. If you want to go to hell, you have to pay your own way. Do you know that? If God had his will, his perfect will, not one human being would perish. He's not willing that any should perish. And what's the antidote? But that all should come to repentance. What do you have to do to not perish? Repent. John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin. Turn from a life of selfishness, self-centeredness, self-gratification. Repent. Turn from that life and follow Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow me. Repent and turn and go the other way. And God had given Jezebel, at this point, pretty much ample time to turn from her sinful ways. But... What does he say? I gave her time to repent, but she is unwilling. She's unwilling. Folks, here's the reality that people just don't want to face. Sin is a choice. You know what I mean? Nobody makes you sin. You choose it. Well, it's their fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's my mom's fault. My dad's fault. But when you stand before God, that's not going to cut it. She is unwilling. It's like the old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, you know? Geraldine. The devil made me do it, honey. Remember that? Sin is a choice. The devil didn't make you do it. Now the devil might encourage you. He might be willing to lend a hand if you go in that direction. But it's your choice. It was the woman, the man, the dog, the cat you gave me. Remember what Adam said to God? Adam, what's up here? What are, you, what are you guys doing? How come you're over naked in the bushes? 
Well, you were already naked. You just didn't know it. Now you know it. Oh, it was the woman you gave me. Remember? Adam blaming his wife. Ah. My wife will be discussing this message with me later. The dog, the cat, right? The mailman, the milkman. We don't have milkmen anymore. Oh, I can't help it. It's not my fault. Fornication, adultery, lying, stealing. It runs in my family. That, that generational curse we talked about. I can't help it. It runs in my family. Yes, it does. You know why? Because we're all part of the same family. Adam's family. They're creepy and they're kooky. Mysterious and spooky. They're all together ooky. The Adams family. It runs in the family, right? But, <laughs> that's no excuse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's still no excuse because of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's the difference between, we talked about during our communion time this morning, that the Old Testament sacrifices did not permanently remove sin. They just covered over it until such time as Christ could come and permanently remove it with his blood. But now, if anyone is in Christ, the new covenant, he is a new creation. God doesn't just give you a fresh paint job. You know how some of these shady... Car dealers will take an old wrecked junk car and they'll put a new paint job on it and maybe some upholstery. And pat, you know. And sadly, a lot of people, all they care about is cosmetics. As a musician, I've seen this a lot. You know, A lot of people buy junk instruments because they look really pretty. I look at what's under the hood. What's really there? How does this thing play? What's it made out of? What are the electronics and so forth if it's an electric guitar? But these young kids, they just want something that looks cool. God doesn't just set out to make us look cool. In fact, we're not going to look cool until we look just like him. But he makes us a new creation. A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Therefore, we don't have any excuse. I can't help it. The dog made me do it. The cat made me do it. The devil made me do it. No, you have a choice. But that's actually a very freeing thing. Do you know that? You know most people today go through life as victims? I'm just a victim. I'm being propelled along by the trials and tribulations of life. I don't have any control. Do you know that you have control in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? Freedom in Christ is the freedom to say no to sin and yes to God. And that's true freedom. It's not a, a thing. It doesn't put you under bondage. It sets you free to make right choices. And guess what? You're not in it alone. When you make right choices, God's there to help you, to strengthen you. Do you know that? I've been saying this for years. God empowers right choices. I just don't think I can do it. I know what's right. I want to do right. God help me. And he will. If you know the right thing, and you want to do the right thing, God will help you do it. But he won't make you do it. You have to choose. And he will help you when you make that right choice. 
Finally, we're going to look at the verses for next week, verses 22 and 23. Indeed, now here's what's going to happen if she doesn't repent. I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Ooh, could Jesus be alluding to the great tribulation coming soon to this planet? Unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children. That's those who have followed her off into deception and to sin. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Yipes. <laughs> it's going to get heavier. Hold on to your yarmulkes. Let's stand. Father God, we do want to thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, you really are our only hope. And we're so thankful that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Lord, once again we pray for those near and dear to us, and even for ourselves, Father, to whatever degree it is needed, that there would be that gift of repentance poured out upon your people and upon those who don't yet know you, Lord. We need our pride broken. We need to be humbled before you. We need to be those who truly are repentant. And we are not ashamed to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, for giving us the precious gift of eternal life, purchased with your shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as a church to avoid the deceptions that came upon the church of Thyatira and some of the other churches that we've been reading about here in Revelation chapter 2. Lord, help us to be the church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, the church that stands firm in the last days and continues to preach the undiluted, unperverted gospel of Christ. Lord, give us strength today as we go from this place. Help us to stand, not to fall, to put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. We ask this in Jesus' name. And before we close, I'm going to ask anyone who needs prayer this morning if you'd raise your hand so we can pray for you. God knows exactly what's on your heart and on your mind right now. It could be something to do with your finances. It could be your health. It could be uh, emotional, mental issues, relationship issues. Whatever it is, God knows. And so I'm going to pray for you all right now. Father God, and we agree together as the body of Christ for these who have raised their hands that you would hear the cry of their hearts, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon them and bless them. Give them wisdom. Give them strength. Give them physical healing if needed. Give them financial provision if needed. And help each one, Father, or whether it be, it could be mental, emotional issues. Lord, you know each heart. We ask you to touch them, bless them, strengthen them, guide them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.